today, but you know, I'm open to uh, your saying no, no, anything but that. But uh, we did start out talking a whole lot about sonnets, and then we never talked about Milton sonnets. And they're in this book, um, so I thought we could just look at two or three of Milton's completely amazing sonnets. Uh, are people okay with that? Um, Can we also talk about Eve? Yeah. You mean why Milton isn't a sexist prick? Because um, he's not. All right. Well, wh what we can do is at least talk about one sonnet and then talk about um, Eve from that. Um, but le let's look, actually, let's look at two sonnets. Let's look at first um, what I consider how my light is spent, um, which is um, when I consider how my light is spent, which is poem 517. I think this is right. I still don't know whether these indexes index the poems or the pages. No, I think it's page 517. Um, you think it's poem 517? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, it's poem 517. Um, so, um, Milton, just so you know, was pretty much the last person or the last major poet to write sonnets in England for about 140 years. Um, sonnets were in vogue, um, so this is, this, this is a kind of bookend for the class. Wyatt and Surrey brought sonnets to England from Italy. And as you know, lots and lots of the people we've studied wrote sonnets. Um, Shakespeare, Daniel, um, Wyatt, Surrey, Sidney, um, etc. Then, after Milton, sonnets fell out of any kind of vogue in England, and no one was writing sonnets at all. Um, I mean, probably some people, some very obscure people were writing obscure sonnets, um, but they would be, you'd be as unlikely to meet a sonnet in a new book of poems in England as you would to meet a pantoum um, in a new book of poems in America. Um, and then the Romantics revived the sonnet. Um, Wordsworth wrote um, more sonnets than anyone, unfortunately, because most of them are terrible. Um, but he also wrote some spectacularly great sonnets. And one of them begins, Scorn Not the Sonnet. Um, and it's partly um, Wordsworth was a person who revived um, a whole lot of old poetic forms. Um, he was sort of like Sidney that way. That is, Wordsworth wrote in an enormous number of different forms, just the way Sidney did. And one of the things that Wordsworth brought back into currency was the sonnet. Um, so sonnets disappeared from England for about a century and a half, and then reappeared with the Romantics. And uh, obviously, they're still being written. Um, and um, th th it's an interesting, their reappearance is an interesting fact. Um, so if you look, however, what Milton does is he writes Petrarchan sonnets, remember, with the volta um, at the end of the octet, or at least with an expected volta at the end of the octet. So this sonnet, Sonnet 16, when I consider how my light is spent, is sometimes um, given the title on his blindness, although obviously not his own title. Um, so light there means um, the light of vision. So when I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless. So when I consider these things, including the talent which is death to hide, um, what's that a reference to? Does anyone know? So do you know where we get the word talent, meaning um, a, um, a skill or a capacity to do something better than most? It actually comes from, if you saw the word talent in the Bible, what would it mean? Yeah. I don't, I've seen it used as like a unit of measurement. Yes, that's what, it's, a, it's actually, it's a coin. It's a unit, uh, it's a monetary unit. Um, things cost five talents. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good job. Um, so um, the, there's something in um, the Gospels called the Parable of the Talents. Is there none on this? Probably there should be, but there isn't. Um, and the Parable of the Talents is that a master 
gives his servants um, each a talent to um, uh, hold for him in safety while he goes away. And then the master comes back, and one servant has buried the talent and, and gives it back to the master um, exactly, has kept it safe. Um, one, I think it's different in the different Gospels, but the point is that one has actually invested the talent, and now it has, uh, he gives his master several talents back. And the master says, because you've done this, um, you're my beloved, and you will be rewarded. Um, and you will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so to what may this be compared? The master is like God, and the talents are the gifts he gives us. And we're not supposed to hide them or to use another biblical par um, parable um, metaphor, not supposed to hide our light under a bushel. We're supposed to make use of the talents which God gives us. And those talents are originally um, monetary values, and we're supposed to make use of them. So, that, so Milton is using the word talent in the monetary value sense because he's referring to the biblical parable, um, but he's also using the word talent in the um, capacity to do something that matters in the world except that he's blind. Um, you guys have all been following the blind lawyer in China. Do you know about this? No one? So this human rights activist in China, blind lawyer, self-taught lawyer who is against forced abortions and... Um, various other things, had been under brutal house arrest after having been brutally imprisoned for um, 18 months. He's been under brutal house arrest for a really long time. And amazingly, even though he was guarded by 90 people, he escaped um, uh, a few days ago and took refuge in the American embassy. Um, and he's blind, so that would be the connection. Um, and now it's turning into a gigantic issue between the U.S. and China, especially since Hillary Clinton is about to go to China to have high-level talks. Um, and um, so it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. It's actually some, somewhat of a surprise that it hasn't been made a political thing in the presidential race yet. Um, so we'll see what happens. But uh, the U.S. seems to be doing the right thing, in my opinion. Um, so, when I consider how my light is spent because he's blind, you're half my days, so how old would he be? Blind before how old? So, um, the beginning of Dante's Inferno is, some of you may know, in the middle of the journey of our life, I found myself lost in a dark wood, and Dante is telling you how old he is when he says, in the middle of the journey of our life. So what's a biblical half-life? According to the Psalms, how long are the years of men? Lincoln alludes to this in the Gettysburg Address. Remember how the Gettysburg Address starts? OK, so think scores. How long are the years of men according to the Bible? Really don't know. This is such an important number, three score and ten, which is in English seventy. So um, yeah, according to Psalms, after Moses, it used to be one twenty in Methuselahian times. It used to be nine hundred, um, but life expectancy just goes down and down and down um, because of our socialist leaders and their death panels. Um, according to Psalms, after Moses. Um, human life is, um, expected life is three score and ten, um, so, so 70. Um, so Dante is how old when he says in the middle, by which he means the very middle of the journey of our life? I know it's not an arithmetic class, but yeah, good, 35, yeah. Um, and uh, so that's a standard um, uh, paraphrases for numbers. Um, half my days would mean that Milton is then how old? Or not yet 35. So he's blind before the age of 35. So um, he has another sonnet where he complains about being 23. Um, How soon hath time, the subtle thief of youth, stolen on his wing my three and twentieth year. So you guys have to face that soon, right? Not yet, but soon. So just watch out. That subtle thief of youth, he's after you. 
Um, but I hope you won't be blind ever, <laughs> and certainly not before 35. Um, but Milton was. So when I consider how my light is spent here half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless. So he's given a talent, but he can't use it. And it's death to hide it, not to invest it, not to make use of it. Though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker. So I'm given this talent. I've also been blinded, which has humbled me and makes me even more than when I had sight. Want me to serve my maker with the talent that he gave me. Though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker. My soul more bent to present my true account, lest he returning chide. So the, what comes in a quotation in the next line is not what he chides. Um, chide here is being used intransitively. That is, you can, um, this is the end of the when clause. So you know that when you begin a clause with, with um, a word like when, you have a subordinate clause. Um, so everyone knows what a clause is, right? A clause has a subject and a verb. Um, independent clauses are clauses that, that make grammatical sense on their own. Um, that is, the cat is on the mat, um, to use the standard one, lots of cats, lots of mats. So an independent clause is, the cat is on the mat. A subordinate clause is one that won't feel grammatically right on its own. So if you say something like, and that, that word will give you green squiggly lines under, um, if you try to keep it on its own. So if you say, um, although the cat is on the map, what's wrong with that? Well, it's a fragment. Yeah, it's a fragment. What makes it a fragment is not that it fails to have a subject and a verb. What makes it a fragment is the word although. If you drop out the word although, it's not a fragment anymore. So it's a fragment that could be made whole by snipping it. Um, unlike a fragment like um, because. So um, it's a subordinate clause. Subordinate clauses always need main clauses to follow them. So if you say, when the cat is on the mat, the mice won't play. Um, so when I consider how my light is spent, is the subordinate clause. And it goes all <coughs> the way to chide. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and, that one, and when I consider that that one talent which is death to hide is lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve there with my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide. So when I consider this, and how my soul is bent to serve my maker because I'm afraid that he's going to return and chide me. So all of that is under the word when. So it's a eight lines, or, a, or what is it, six lines of a when. Um, that's grammatically a little bit hard, so I'm just trying to get you to slot it into the grammar correctly, which then, um, then the meaning will fall into place. So when I consider this, and when I worry, that he, that God, my maker, is going to return and chide, what do I do? Now you have to go to the next two lines. Yeah, I fondly ask this question. Doth God exact day labor, light denied? So fondly there means stupidly. Um, Fond is actually a, um, often a synonym for senile. Um, King Lear is called fond, not because he likes his daughters, but because he doesn't know what's going on. Um, so when I think of all these things and how I'm blind and how I can't do what I want to do and help God even though I want to and how worried I am at what he's going to do to me, I, stoop, I ask the following stupid question. Doth God exact day labor, light denied? So can he require me to do day labor, be a day laborer, labor within the day, when there's no light, when I'm stuck in darkness, when light is denied? So that's the first sentence of this poem. I fondly asked, doth God exact day labor, light denied? 
any time that I consider how my light is spent and how I can't do anything and how worried I am that he's going to return and chide me. And then we get a but. But patience to prevent that murmur. Um, the word murmur there, again, is a biblical word. Um, the children of Israel murmur against God. So it's not, we use murmur now in a kind of the murmuring brooks and how nice they are, or we might murmur to our lovers or whatever. But murmur in a biblical context means something quite different. It means um, we would probably use mutter um, as, a, as a synonym in modern English. That is when you mutter against someone. Someone says, you really have to take this exam today. That's what murmuring is. So patience to prevent that murmur, that is that he is um, complaining under his breath, but patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed and post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. So look up, look up, look up, everyone look up. What does that word wait rhyme with? Stay. Like you didn't look up. You looked oh, down. Yeah. <laughs> you remembered it? Good. Look for the rhyme you looked for the rhyme. Yeah. It's really hard to hear the rhymes in what patience says. It's a lot suddenly the poem sounds like Herbert. Um, you get this amazing conversational, you get this ferocious. Um, end-stopped bunch of lines. When I consider how my light is spent, bang, you're half my days in this dark world and wide, bang, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodge with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve there with my maker and present my true account. That's maybe the first true enjambment in the poem. Lest he returning chide, doth God exact day labor light denied, I fondly ask. And then patience is just really patient in her response, but patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, and you wouldn't hear this as rhymed if someone wrote this as prose, just what patience says. God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed and post our land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. Um, so that's a really good exposition of what patience would be in um, poetic diction. That is, patience is relaxed and easy, and everything falls into place when she speaks. The rhymes are there, but they're not forced. The lines aren't aiming at the rhymes. The rhymes are droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven, as Portia says of mercy, each rhyme does. Um, okay, look at uh, on the next page, Sonnet 19, Milton's last sonnet, Dr. Johnson, who wrote in an age when people weren't doing sonnets anymore, called this A Poor Sonnet on the Death of His Wife. Um, this will be our segue into Eve. Um, so Milton is blind, and what's really crucial about the sonnet, it's often called Sonnet 23. There are different ways of counting Milton's sonnets. Uh, the point is it's his last sonnet. Uh, what's really crucial here is that Milton is describing um, a dream that he had in which he dreamt he saw his dead wife, a woman that in reality he had never seen. Not because he wasn't married to her, but because he met her after he was blind. So blind, he meets her. Blind, he marries her. Blind, he fathers a daughter with her blind, he goes to her funeral. Um, all of this occurs after his blindness. And then he has a dream. Methought I saw, and this is grammatically hard also. That's one reason I wanted us to look at um, uh, when I consider how my light is spent. It takes a little while to see how Milton's grammar um, works in the sonnets, because he really waits a long time for the other shoe to fall. So, methought I saw my late espoused saint. Um, and again, that's a deceptively simple line because it's not only what any normal person would see as the wonder of this dream, is that he saw this dead person, and that's great. Methought I saw my late espoused saint. She's late, she's a saint, that is, she's gone to heaven. That's what the word saint means there. 
um, in Puritan language, the saints are the um, people whose goodness um, or whose salvation um, we can talk about. It's not, um, it's again a counter to Catholic doctrine where saints are really special. Um, for the Puritans, saints are the saved. Um, those, are, those are synonymous terms. There aren't special people in heaven, except, of course, for the sun. Um, but otherwise, they're not special people in heaven. They're all saints. Um, the Puritan Revolution against Charles I was called the Revolution of the Saints. So methought I saw my late espoused saint, late as in married fairly recently, but late as also as in dead, married espoused saint. But what you won't think at first and have to realize but when you reread the sonnet is that the word saw is also crucial there. That is, amazing thing happened. I thought I saw her. So it's not only that I dreamt of her, which is not unusual to dream of the dead, but I thought I saw her. I dreamt that I could see. Uh, we talked about this before, but I'll mention it again now. Um, <coughs> if you talk to people who've been blind a long time, um, <coughs> 10 years or more, and ask them if they remember what seeing is like, according to Oliver Sacks, there's about a 50-50 split. Um, some people will still um, have very strong visual, um, a very strong visual imagination, maybe even stronger because they're blind, so that they have to do it all themselves. It's all internal, and they're working really hard on what things look like, even though they're blind. And then these are people who are blind because of some problem with their eyes, not some problem with their brains, which is another kind of blindness. Um, and about half of them lose visual sense. Um, and there are people who have been blind for 10 or 20 years who don't remember what colors look like, don't remember what shapes look like, don't think of the world in those terms anymore. If you talk to people who are born blind, they don't think of themselves as experiencing any deficit. Um, for them, it's not like, oh, if only I could see, things would be very different. It's they don't even know, they don't know any more about what seeing is like than we know what um, echolocation is like for bats. Um, we know we can't do it, but we have no idea what a bat's experience of echolocation is, that a bat can hear where a mosquito is to the tenth of a, of a millimeter, a bat can know just where that mosquito is through hearing it. And we have no idea what that would be. Um, we could analogize it to sight. And blind people can analogize sight to feeling. But it's just not the same thing. Um, or then we, we have no idea how pigeons know which way is north. I mean, we know scientifically how they know which way is north. Um, that is, they have a magnetic sense. But we have no idea what a magnetic sense, what the experience of a magnetic sense is. So for half of blind people, they don't have any idea of what vision is like any more than we have an experience of what a magnetic sense is like. It's not that pigeons feel themselves like a compass needle going, ooh, north. Um, they just feel. Um, because they because they sometimes fly north, and they sometimes fly south, and they fly at equal speeds in both directions. That's how I know. Um, I know we don't know. Um, but Milton clearly had a strong visual sense. Nevertheless, he probably dreamt when dreaming of stuff on his mind. You know, oh, tomorrow I have to do the laundry, or next week I have this um, defense of the English people due. Um, when thinking of stuff on his mind, he probably dreamt of that stuff the way he experienced it, that is, as a blind person. Um, he may have dreamt, he probably did dream of his childhood in visual terms. When he dreamt of the past, he probably dreamt visually because he is an intensely visual poet, all the more so after he goes blind, as we saw in Paradise Lost, not to me returns. Um, vernal bloom, nor dawn, nor human face divine. Um, but he knows what he's not seeing. But 
now an amazing thing is happening, which is he dreams of the face of his dead wife. And that's someone he's never seen. So he's not dreaming of a memory. In his dream, he can see her. And that's almost as amazing as dreaming that she's alive. So methought I saw my latest spouse, saying, brought to me like Alcestis from the grave, whom Jove's great son to her glad husband gave, rescued from death by force, though pale and faint. So Yale, what's the story there? Do you know? Uh, yeah. Admetus, is, uh, he's a king, he's supposed to die, and he's told that if he can get someone to take his place, he can keep living. And the only person willing to do it is his wife, Alcestis. Yeah, his old parents say, are you out of your mind? His <laughs> friends, he gives orders to his underlings. And they say, what are you going to do, kill us if we say no? So eventually his wife Alcestis agrees, and then what happens? And then um, Hercules comes by, and he's, you know, drinking up a storm. And he goes, why is everyone so sad? And they go, well, Alcestis just died. He's like, this is unacceptable. He goes all the way down to Hades, and he gets her back for Admetus. Yeah. Admetus says, you know, I feel really crappy. Um, <laughs> I thought it would be a good thing, but actually I, I'm really lonely without her, and uh, all the more lonely that she was willing to die for me much like Jesus for all of us. Um, and then um, because he has shown um, Heracles or Hercules um, hospitality and because he's Hercules, um, he goes to um, the underworld and brings um, Alcestis back to her glad husband. So here Milton is thinking of himself as being like Admetus, the selfish husband. And um, his dead wife seems all the more um, saintly um, to him. He's got survivor's guilt. But there she is. Methought I saw my latest spouse at Saint brought to me like Alcestis from the grave, whom Jove's great son to her glad husband gave, rescued from death by force, though pale and faint. Mine, and now mine there is the subject of the next sentence, but the predicate isn't going to come for a while. So just so you know, the predicate is the word came. Mine came vested all in white. But we get a lot of um, adjectival phrase before that. So mine, and you can think of a comma there, as whom washed from spot of childbed taint purification in the old law did save. So she looked to me like someone who, having given birth, was purified according to the laws in Leviticus. Um, do people know what those are called in Hebrew ritual? Ritual bath that you have to take? Yeah? A mikvah. Yeah. So she seemed to come to me like a woman who, having given birth, then takes the ritual bath in the mikvah. Um, she looked to me like such a person, and also, as I hope, I will have sight of her in heaven without restraint. So mine, like one, as whom washed from spot of childbed taint, purification of the old law did save, and such as yet once more I trust to have full sight of her in heaven without restraint, came vested all in white. So again, grammatically, it's mine came vested all in white, that is, she looked like someone who had just taken the ritual bath and then put on white clothing, or she looked like what the people in heaven almost certainly wear, which is white gowns. And this is how I hope to see her in heaven. So mine came vested all in white, pure as her mind. Her face was veiled. Why is her face veiled? He doesn't know what she looks like. Why else is her face veiled? She's wearing white and she's veiled. Yeah? Like a bride. Like a bride. So mine came vested all in white, pure as her mind. Her face was veiled. Yet to my fancied sight, to the sight I fancied, imagined, dreamt that I had, love, sweetness, goodness in her person <coughs> shined. So clear as in no face. <coughs> with more delight. So I couldn't see what she looked like, but what I could see in her was love, sweetness, goodness, shining from her so clear as in no face with more delight. 
But oh, as to embrace me she inclined. So she's bending down to embrace him because he's lying in his bed. Inclined there means um, bowed, um, bent over, like um, an inclination um, or an incline. You know, when you do um, uh, things, do the physics of um, how fast things accelerate down an incline. Um, but oh, as to embrace me, she inclined. I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. So there again, it's day labor, it's daytime, but for him it's nighttime. So day brought back my night, I was blind. Um, what else does it mean? Metaphorically? I mean, yeah, it's two metaphors. One's an easy metaphor, um, kind of standard metaphor. It's nighttime all around. As um, Charles Mingus, the great bass player, said, it's always night or we wouldn't need light. So he doesn't get light. For him, it's nighttime always. Um, day brings back his night when he wakes up. He wakes up to being blind. Um, but, and that's a metaphor, but the much harder, less typical metaphor is, and she's dead. That is, my life is nighttime not because I'm blind, but because she's gone. So day brought back my night. Um, what's unusual or unexpected about that last line? How do you, what do you think really happened in his dream? The sequence of things in the last line? He has, uh, she fled after I waked. Yeah. So it's he woke up and then she flees. Reminding us of what myth? Yael? Wouldn't you? Yes. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think so? Yeah. He he wakes up to look at her, and as soon as he looks at her, she has to go back to the land of the dead. Yeah, it is Orpheus and Eurydice, and and it's meant to be Orpheus and Eurydice. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do people know the myth, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice? Anyone? No, he doesn't. But what Milton is doing is taking the fact that he's waking up as like Orpheus turning around. And Milton is Milton talks about Orpheus everywhere. This is a thing I might mention to you at some point. Milton talks about Orpheus everywhere. Um, the um, in um, the Invocation of Book Seven, um, he compares himself to. Um, Orpheus, and I don't actually have it um, with me, but um, the invocation of Book 7 is um, he calls upon the muse Calliope, who is Orpheus's mother, to keep far off the barbarous race that in Rhodope tore the Thracian bard um, while what is it, hills and rocks had ears to music, nor could the muse defend her son. So Calliope, the muse, the mother of Orpheus, couldn't defend Orpheus from the Bacanti who, um, who murdered him, nor could the muse defend her son. And then he goes on talking to his own muse, Urania, or God. So fail not thou, who thee implores, for thou art heavenly, she an empty dream. So Calliope couldn't save Orpheus, and he was killed. He says to his own muse, don't fail me, for thou art heavenly, she an empty dream. Notice that then what that means is the reason she couldn't save Orpheus was that she was an empty dream. And that doesn't mean, ha, she's just an empty dream. It means something exactly the opposite. It means that she's like his latest spouse's saint. She wants to save Orpheus, but she can't. And the reason she can't is that her existence is the existence of a dream figure. It's not that she doesn't exist. It's that she, only, she is as powerless as a dream figure. 
just as Milton's wife is forced back into the underworld by his waking up. It's not, oh, I woke up and, and it turned out that this wasn't real. He wakes up and that makes her like Eurydice, forces her back into this terrible defenseless place because she's a dream. So that when you die, you may become only a dream. And that's the experience that you have. Um, that's from the Odyssey. Um, that's from the Iliad. When um, Achilles sees Patroclus after lying awake for nine days and nights in mourning for Patroclus, sleep finally overcomes him. And Patroclus appears to him. And do you know what Patroclus says? Do you know? Um, oh. He says, you've forgotten me. Which is amazing. Achilles has been ferociously mourning, sleeplessly for nine days and nights. And then he falls asleep out of sheer exhaustion. And Patroclus says to him, you've forgotten me. And Achilles tries to embrace him. And Patroclus says, I'm only the image of Patroclus. Um, and part of what's so sorrowful about that is that when you're dead, you become an image. It's not that when you're dead, you're gone completely, but it's not that when you're dead, you're saved in some other world. It's that when you're dead, you become an image. This is something Philip Pullman picks up on in The Amber Spyglass. Um, the Dead, if you haven't read it, you know, summer is here, and you should. Um, but The Dead in The Amber Spyglass um, have become pure images, and they are full of mourning over the fact that they've become images, um, that that's all they are, are empty dreams. They become empty dreams. They become ghosts of themselves, but not ghosts that can do anything, ghosts that can't do anything. So that's what happens to Calliope. She can't save Orpheus, not because she doesn't exist. There's no contempt in the phrase empty dream, but because she has become a ghost. She's not real. Or she's not real in the sense that she can intervene in the real world. Um, in L'Allegro and Il Penseroso, um, two great poems. Um, I, think we re I think Il Penseroso is in here, but L'Allegro isn't. Um, they're references to Orpheus. So um, in um, L'Allegro, um, Milton talks about how the song, um, if Orpheus had sung a certain song of joy and happiness to Hades, um, he would have made Hades quite set free his half-regained Eurydice. And then in Il Penseroso, L'Allegro means the cheerful person. Il Penseroso means the pensive person. And it's a, it's a pairing of poems, one of whom is spoken, one of which is spoken by the cheerful person, one, um, the complimentary poem spoken by the melancholy or pensive person. And the pensive person um, talks about the poems which um, down, how Orpheus singing a pensive song um, um, drew a tear down Pluto's iron cheek and made hell grant what love did seek. Made hell grant what love did seek. So that's a pretty amazing line. It's hell versus love, and poetry's on the side of love, like Jove's great son. Poetry's on the side of love, and it makes hell grant what love did seek. So that's what Milton's Orphic thinking is about. Um, it's in Orpheus's in Lycidas. If you look up Milton and Orpheus, or if you do a search through Milton's works for Orpheus, you will find Orpheus appearing um, at all the crucial places in Milton. OK, so one, one way that this is a segue into Eve is that um, Milton uses this dream in Paradise Lost. I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. In Paradise Lost, 
there's a line which begins, I waked. Who do you think says that? Same first two syllables, two words. I'll give you the whole line. I waked to find her or forever to deplore her loss. Adam. Yeah, I think you said um. That's the Boston way of saying Adam. Um, um, yeah, Adam. So Adam is describing to Raphael his own creation, and he says that he actually challenged God. Um, now remember, Eve hears this story. What Adam says is, um, and this is, again, crucial about Paradise Lost. Adam says, so God gave me everything and gave me all these animals, and... Um, said that everything was really copacetic. And then I said, excuse me, but I have a question. And God says, what? What's wrong? You have everything you could possibly need. And Adam says, well, yeah, but you know, all these animals have mates. They have companions. And I don't. I mean, you're great in everything, but you're certainly not my companion. And neither are any of these animals. And God says to Adam, look, I'm alone. Am I complaining? We'll have chicken salad. Um, and Adam says, you may be alone, but you're perfect. You're God. I'm not perfect. I'm a human. And I really need um, a companion. Now, one thing to notice there is that it's not true that God is alone. We know that God has the Son as the image of his glory, as the person he talks to. So when he says to Adam, I'm alone, that's really not so true. But at any rate, Adam says, that may be so, but I would still like another human being. And God says, good, you passed a test. I wanted to see whether you'd stand up for your rights. I was pleased to test thee, Adam, and to see whether you would stand up for your rights. And you did. You were great. Here, I'm going to make a woman for you. So then he makes Adam fall asleep, one of two major dreams in Paradise Lost. And in the dream, Adam actually sees what's happening, which is that a rib is taken out of him, it's formed into Eve, he sees Eve, um, she looks beautiful, he goes and wants to embrace her, and then he wakes up. And she's not there. And he says, I wake to find her, or forever to deplore her loss. That is, he has this dream of a woman, and he's immediately in love with her, and then he wakes up and she's gone. Except, no, and then, lo, behold, not far off, such as I dreamed. So he wakes to find it true. John Keats, in a great letter, um, Keats's letters are as good as any um, essays by any of the Romantic poets. Um, Keats's letters are crucial documents of um, the literary imagination. In a letter, Keats has a famous sentence, the imagination may be compared to Adam's dream. He awoke and found it truth. So that's Keats reading Milton and thinking how the imagination, the poetic imagination works. You have a dream and then you wake up and it turns out to be truth in the kind of truth that poetry gives you. So Adam embraces Eve. He gets her. Now remember Eve hears this. Now it's book nine. And the serpent says, do you really think God is going to punish you for wanting to improve your lot? He's probably testing you. Now, she knows that Adam's been tested and that going against God turned out to be what God wanted him to do. So that's part of the background of Eve's temptation. That is that doing the question we raised about the morally right thing, judging God, justifying God's ways. That's a question that we can see arises when it comes to Adam, who God says everything is fine, and Adam says, no, I don't think so. And God says, good, you did good. You didn't assume that just because I told you everything was fine, it was. It's everywhere in Paradise Lost that God's say-so isn't enough, that you have to think through whether you agree, with, whether your own conscience agrees with what God is saying, whether your own judgment agrees with what God is saying. 
So, Adam doesn't agree with God, and God says, good, you done good. I didn't agree with it either. I just wanted to see what you would do. Eve now decides to eat the apple, and partly she does it because it's presented to her as a test that God is giving her. Is he really wanting you just to be um, cravenly obedient, or does he want to test you the way he tested Adam? So the answer is no, he doesn't want to test her the way he tested Adam. Or the answer is actually he does, but he wants her to fail the test by standing up for herself. So she does. So just to summarize what happens then, Adam comes, very famous moment, he's wreathed a chaplet of roses for her, and then he sees her, and he doesn't even notice that he drops them because he realizes what's happened. And then there's a line that Adam first to himself inly silence broke, and he thinks about what to do next. And that's an amazing line because, because again, the first there means this is the first time that anyone has thought to themselves without speaking what they think. So Adam has an inner, inward soliloquy, first time in human history, that there's thought without sharing of the thought. And finally, he decides, no, I'm going to die too. Certain my resolution is to die. Um, how can I live without thee and wander these wide woods forlorn? Should God create a second Eve and I another rib before loss of thee would never from my heart? So the first thing to notice is that Adam treats Eve as a human being, not as a replaceable person. And that's really important. Even if I got your exact replica but unfallen, no, not good enough because you're real. And that's really an important moral moment on Adam's part. It's Adam's morality at its height. So he falls. He, then he says to Eve, well, you know, you probably made a mistake. He doesn't say what he's really thinking. He says, you probably made a mistake, but let's see what happens. Maybe it'll all be okay. I can't believe that God would want Satan to win, so I'm going to eat the apple too. Um, then they have really hot sex. Um, first time that sex is ever hot in human history, but then they feel dirty about it afterwards. Um, and then God comes. It's actually the son who comes and says, what's going on? And Adam says, well, we were naked. And the son says, how did you know? And Adam says, that woman you gave me gave me the apple. It's your fault should have given me a better woman. I ate the apple, but, you know, I wouldn't have done it except the person you married me off to, Adam says to God. Um, very bad moment for Adam. It shows that he's fallen. It shows that he's fallen into jerkiness, let's say. Um, he wasn't a jerk. In, he didn't fall because he was a jerk. He became a jerk because he fell. Then God rebukes Adam, was she thy God that thou didst follow her? Then he turns to Eve and says, and what can you say for yourself? And all she says is, the serpent gave it me and I did eat. And she doesn't blame Adam. She doesn't blame the situation. She doesn't blame God. She accepts full responsibility. And what happens through the, through the rest of Paradise Lost is that Eve is the one who accepts responsibility in a way that Adam has a lot of trouble doing it. Eve is the one who understands the situation they're in after the fall. Before the fall, Adam is deeper than Eve. But after the fall, Eve is deeper than Adam. Um, and that's why she suggests suicide, which is an amazing thing for her to suggest. That is, God says, you're going to die if you eat the fruit. They do eat the fruit. He says, well, I'm not going to make it so bad for you, but you'll die eventually, and so will your children. And her response to that is to say to Adam, why don't we just kill ourselves and not do this to our children? Which is a really deep response to the situation. 
Um, and they have a really good conversation about that. Um, I mean, not good as in, oh, we had a good conversation last night, but good as in um, a really thoughtful and powerful um, argument um, or debate or philosophical consideration of the question. But the main thing, again, this is, I'm saying this too fast, but the main thing is after the fall, we see Adam, Adam and Eve are both corrupt, we could put it this way. Eve is more corrupt before the fall. That is for reasons of being secondary to Adam, of having to um, do whatever he wants, of his wearing the pants in the first couple. She's a little bit embittered. And she also um, has reasons to think that maybe she's being tested. Um, so the corruption comes from her. She's the one who is a little bit like Satan, a little bit unhappy about being subordinate. After the fall, it's Eve who thinks most deeply and Adam who becomes corrupt, who becomes a jerk, who becomes unsubtle the way Shakespeare's men are unsubtle compared to Shakespeare's women. Um, and it's as though what Milton wants to do is give both representatives of humanity full consideration as human beings. But the plot means, as every plot in every story ever written means, that sometimes people are fully human and sometimes, that is just what Kant would call ends in themselves, and sometimes they're instruments to further the narrative. And it's part of the trick of writing any kind of deep narrative to be able to treat characters as both fully human and as instruments for making the narrative go forward. In Paradise Lost, the instruments are really mainly the most of the rebel angels and most of the loyal angels. Very few of them feel fully human. Satan, maybe. Abdiel, maybe. Raphael, meh. Um, Gabriel and Michael, not at all. Um, but Adam and Eve, it's very important for Milton that they not be treated simply as instruments. But they have to be instruments for the plot to work. So Eve is the instrument and not the full human before the fall. Adam is the instrument and not the full human after the fall. Adam is fully human before the fall. Eve is fully human after the fall. That's simplifying too much, but that's the basic um, structure. All right. Um, I am looking forward to your papers. And um, read His Dark Materials this summer and have a good summer. <laughs>